1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to be speaking today to Dr. Megan Nutzman about her fascinating book titled Contested Cures Identity and Ritual Healing in Roman and Late Antique Palestine, published by the Edinburgh University Press in 2022. This is a really interesting book that takes us right into the world of the ancient Mediterranean to understand what individuals were doing? Were they looking for divine aid, magical aid? Um, How did people think about curing all sorts of different afflictions um, and illnesses? The book goes into lots of different communities and the various things that they try and the similarities and differences between them. So it's a really fascinating book that puts us in maybe an unfamiliar place and time or an unfamiliar way of thinking, but a really interesting one that is certainly more familiar by the end of the book. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to take us through it.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Miranda.
1: Before we dive into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this?
0: Sure. I am a professor of ancient history at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. I decided to write this book, which I should start by saying is a very substantial revision of my doctoral dissertation. I started writing it because I was interested in how people in antiquity chose among the various ritual healing options available to them. So why did some people uh, visit a holy man while other people chose to wear an amulet and others went to a sanctuary to incubate and uh, await for a, a vision or a dream of a god that would heal them? And nobody seemed to be answering this question. So people who worked on local healing cults were doing something in entirely different than people who worked on amulets or what we call magic, and this raised questions for me. So I set out to try to figure out um, how people selected an option from among these choices. Ultimately, I can't answer that question. Uh, The answer that I I finally have is they choose what's most available to them. I had thought that there might be something about different diseases that made them inclined to try certain things. The reason I ended up looking at ancient Palestine is because it's one of the few places where our evidence for different types of ritual healing really overlaps. Uh, I got really excited when uh, I first encountered the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, which has which is known from the account in John 5, where Jesus is said to have performed a miracle. And I learned uh, about the afterlife of this site and then the potential existence of a cult of Asclepius at the same site. So that discovery um, was really transformative for me and helped me ground the work, not across the broader Mediterranean, but actually in this one particular region. So that's how I ended up with this book.
1: Hmm. Thank you for giving us that bit of background. Um, I'd love to start with amulets. Um, as you've mentioned, it's one of the pieces here. And to be honest, perhaps my personal thing that I was most intrigued by. When we say amulets, what do we actually mean? What kinds of amulets were present in this period?
0: That's a great question, and it's not surprising that you're really drawn to the amulets. They're these tangible things um, that it's pretty easy for us today to relate to. In antiquity, there were all sorts of amulets. Uh, Let me start with the very basic division between inscribed amulets and uninscribed amulets. My book focuses on the inscribed amulets, largely because we don't have access, for the most part, to those uninscribed amulets. By uninscribed amulets, I mean things that were thought to have some sort of innate property of healing or protection. So things like shells, mirrors, bells, beads, all of these things could be worn on the body for protection and healing, but we can't, we can't identify that in the archaeological record. If we find a shell, how do we know that that shell was used as an amulet? Well, we don't in, in the vast majority of cases. So I'm focusing in the book on inscribed amulets, amulets that had texts or images carved or written on them. These amulets could come in a wide variety of forms from really cheap options, such as things written on leaves. We have lots of descriptions uh, in in what we call the Greek magical papyri of amulets written on leaves. None of these survive in the archeological record. If you think about fall and the leaves falling, there's no way that these things are going to survive in the archeological record. So moving up from leaves, we have papyri amulets, which are also on the cheaper side of things. And we do have a lot of these that survive, but for the most part, they only survive in Egypt. And this was a real, this was a real disappointment to me in choosing to focus the book on Palestine uh, because we don't have these papyri amulets from Palestine. They would have been cheap, they would have been readily accessible and we know that they were used we have written descriptions of them so papyrus parchment could have also been used for amulets uh, and there are lots and lots of books uh, describing the uh, modern books describing the corpus of amulets papyrus amulets that we have from egypt other types of materials that amulets could be Uh, written on, inscribed amulets. Um, The one that gets uh, a lot of attention among scholars are what we call lamellae, which are really thin metal sheets that have had words inscribed, etched into them. And we have a number of those that I look at in the book from Palestine. We also have gemstones uh, of various degrees of, uh, uh, various... Levels of the the value of the gemstone. So some of them are low value stones, and some of them can be much more valuable stones. And often these would have images rather than texts uh, inscribed on them. To a certain degree, this has to do with the process for inscribing these gemstones. It was not very convenient, very easy to inscribe letters onto the gemstones. They were much more. Uh, they were much more easily used to have images drawn on them. And then finally we have jewelry amulets, so pendants, bracelets, and rings that have inscriptions and images drawn on them. One of the things that uh, also motivated me in my look at amulets in this book was the tendency of of scholars today to divide amulets according to these different types. So whether it's a papyrus amulet, a lamella, Uh, gemstone or jewelry, they get subdivided into all of these groups and then further subdivided beyond that according to the language uh, or the cultural or religious tradition that produced the amulet. And my goal was to look beyond these distinctions and to take a more holistic view of the available types of amulets that people would have had access to in Roman and late antique Palestine.
1: So. Obviously, amulets have loads of different types, uh, which is super cool, imagining them all in my head, looking at the images. Um, But of course, there's loads that, as you said, we know about, but didn't really survive. So to what extent can we have any information, really, about who was using the amulets and what they were trying to do with them?
0: Well, to be honest, I think just about everybody was using these amulets with the exception of the elite authors who we will get to later who railed against these things and they had specific purposes for that. But I think just about everybody else used them. So what were they using them for? There is a a wide variety of things that they used them for. Fundamentally, I am interested in healing and protective amulets so for example some of the things that we know for sure that people used uh, amulets for fever is very common and by fever, the descriptions ind- seem to indicate that we're actually talking about malaria here, which was endemic in the region. So fever amulets, uh, there are a lot of amulets that have to do with gynecological concerns. Uh, they, uh, in antiquity, the, the thought was that the womb could wander about the body, uh, and so you have these amulets that show a lock being put on the womb in order to keep it from moving around. One of the amulets that I look at in the book is a gemstone that was intended to treat sciatica, Uh, so these physical complaints that people who are laborers might have been facing. So we have this whole category of healing amulets. For specific conditions. But then beyond that, there were also general protective amulets where the exact nature of, of a disease is not stated. Um, so, what the amulet might say is that they protect against all illnesses and any illness causing demon. So Uh, In antiquity, many of these uh, illnesses were thought to be caused uh, by demonic attacks, and so a protective amulet is protecting both against uh, demons and against the illnesses that demons cause. We also have exorcism amulets which relate to this same fundamental idea that demons cause illnesses. So an exorcism amulet is trying to expel a demon from a person's body and with it expel the disease. Some people like to distinguish between amulets that are properly healing amulets uh, and those that are protective. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily helpful. So whether or not the person is actively suffering from a disease or whether they are anticipating uh, a potential disease, I lump them all into the same kind of category. So I don't tend to differentiate between healing and protection and exorcism. Other types of amulets that I don't get into so much in this book um, are non-healing amulets. So, for example, we have amulets that are intended to bring success to the person who wears them. That success could be in a business transaction uh, uh, as they are appearing in a, a... in a governmental process, maybe they have to make an appearance before a governor, and we even have amulets that relate to victory in chariot racing. The the protective amulets, I should go back and say that houses and animals could also be covered by these amulets. So we have examples where uh, amulets are not worn on the body, they're attached to a house to protect everybody who came in and we do have other amulets that were meant to be worn by an animal so back to your question of who used them again i really think I really think everybody used them, uh, especially those ones that were cheap and readily accessible, the things that were written on leaves. Anybody could go out and find a leaf and get somebody to write a few words on it or to draw a picture on it, and then they would wear that on their body. We have Uh, They have a couple of ways that they could have done that. Something could have been rolled up into a tube, a leaf or papyrus could have been rolled into a tube, and a cord could have been passed through the middle of that tube and then the cord attached to their body. Or the amulet could have been put into a little pouch, say a leather pouch, and then the pouch attached to their body. So I think that everybody was using these, especially the ones that were cheap and easily accessible.
1: Yeah, certainly from those examples, they are turning up in all sorts of places, which would suggest they're quite widely used indeed. Um, But even if everyone is using them, you talk about in the book, the content of them or exactly how they might be used might differ to some extent. And of course, I was most fascinated, obviously, by the idea of um, biblical verses um, some things seem quite universal to being human, and some things do seem to be a bit different depending on one's religious beliefs. How did different language communities use biblical verses specifically on amulets?
0: That is a great question. And it's something that I didn't set out to answer as I was envisioning the book, but something that became interesting to me as I was writing the book. So, as I said a couple of minutes ago, Oftentimes, when scholars study these amulets, they divide them according to the material on which they were written. So, papyrus amulets are separated from lamella and uh, or lamellae and jewelry, and amulets in different languages are studied separately and since i was trying to overcome that um, i looked i started looking at the samaritan amulets from palestine and bringing them into conversation with the jewish amulets and with the christian amulets and in doing that i discovered that the samaritan amulets tend to use different biblical passages than the jewish amulets and they use them and the way that they use them is different too. So the Samaritan amulets largely fall into two categories. There are um, octagonal rings that have inscriptions uh, on all of the different sides of the octagon. Uh, And then there are pendants, usually with inscriptions on both sides of the pendant. And for most of these Samaritan amulets, the only text on the amulet um, is a quotation or multiple quotations from uh, the Hebrew Bible, from the Pentateuch. In contrast, Jewish amulets and Christian amulets are far more likely to include short excerpts from, uh, from the sacred text and to pair them with other longer texts that identify specific things that need protection or that one needs to be protected against or that a person needs healing for. So in a Samaritan amulet, there's there's no identification of why somebody is wearing the amulet. All you have is this ring or this pendant with biblical verses on it. Whereas a Jewish or a Christian amulet tends to have um, more information about the person who is using it or about the reason that they're using it. So, once I had noticed that, I started to make lists. I made lists of verses that were showing up on these different types of amulets. And I noticed that. Um, the selections from the Hebrew Bible that were being used on Samaritan amulets and on Jewish amulets were different. Now, part of that is because um, the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and Jewish amulets included uh, quotations from passages beyond the Pentateuch. Uh, but even among verses from those first five books, there there's a difference. The the Jewish amulets tended to avoid uh, the passages that were so common among the Samaritan amulets, and and really and truly among the Samaritan amulets, there's a very small corpus of what verses show up on these amulets. So um, so Jewish amulets tended to avoid them. Uh, and the other thing that I started to think about also was to bring this into conversation with Another way um, that in antiquity, Jews started to wear biblical texts on their body, and that is the tefillin, uh, this ritual that developed uh, in the early rabbinic period, or so actually the the origins are somewhat before the the early rabbinic period, but it's um, finalized in the early rabbinic period, uh, in which other passages from the Hebrew Bible are inscribed on their body, uh, and it's understood as being in fulfillment of the biblical command in Deuteronomy 6. And those verses that show up on tefillin are also avoided for the most part in Jewish amulets. And I find that really interesting, especially because one of the points that I try to make throughout the book is that that the development of these things is largely from the ground up rather than from the top down. People will do whatever they think will bring them healing. And any sort of an effort to impose rules on that from above is often unsuccessful. But here, in the way that these verses are being used, here we do seem to have some tendencies, um, and I'm not, to be honest, quite sure what to make of that. Why are these tendencies to avoid certain verses uh, or to select from certain verses so strong among the amulets when in many other ways, healing practices are widely divergent and people turn to whatever options they think will work for them. Ultimately, this is a question I'm still thinking about. So the book was focused on Palestine, uh, just on the region of Palestine. and. In my next project, I'm considering, I'm continuing to think about the use of biblical quotations moving beyond Palestine so I can get into some of that really rich Egyptian material where we have, um, for example, uh, the Lord's Prayer being used on amulets, we have Gospel in Kippets, the first couple of words of the Gospels being used on amulets. None of that appears in Palestine, uh, and I'm really excited to move into this material with my next project.
1: Mm, That sounds exciting Um, and very intriguing to notice this, so thank you for taking us through those different communities. It sounds in a lot of ways like kind of each community did a particular thing, but you also write about in the book that sometimes amulets crossed some of these lines. how, why, and how did the people in charge of that respond?
0: Oh, yes. I, that's the whole point I think of my book is that these traditions did cross the lines that we understand as dividing cultural, religious, linguistic communities. And that certainly some uh, elites in antiquity also understood as dividing these groups. But I think when you're dealing with a a region of close cultural contact, such as you have in Roman and late antique Palestine, there would have been very clear opportunities for this ritual technology to change hands. So the way that amulets functioned would, uh, would have changed, would have crossed these borders and people would have taken this what I might call amulet technology, and applied their own uh, divine names or sacred texts to it, but the underlying assumption of how amulets worked would have remained the same. So I start and end the book with this imaginative vignette about a woman uh, with a son who has malaria, uh, and she is desperate to find a cure because she doesn't understand malaria, of course. Um, all she knows is that her son keeps getting sick. Uh, and I should start out here by pointing out that this is this is imaginative. I am trying to get us access to how these traditions did cross these these lines that divided communities, and we don't we don't have any narrative of that. So I'm imagining what what might have happened. So I picture her at a market or at a well, places that, um, especially in a city such as Caesarea, uh, where you would have had lots of different religious groups inhabiting the city, um, where you would have encountered um, people who didn't come from your own community. So I have this woman at a well or a market, And uh, she's talking to people, some of whom she knows and some of whom she doesn't know. And you can imagine um, the sympathy and advice that this woman would have gotten. She's exhausted from trying to help her son. She feels like she's at her wits end. Um, and some people have said, oh, have you tried this? I heard this worked for so-and-so. I heard um, maybe this prayer. You could say this prayer over your son. And that woman, in her desperation to do something to make to help her son survive, would have been willing to try just about anything. And that's, I think, how we should understand um, how these these traditions, these ritual healing techniques and technologies, transfer transferred across the lines that modern scholars see as dividing these communities. This is a human thing, everybody, it's sickness, uh, death, these are human conditions, and they would have been, they would have evoked sympathy and advice from people. and and in desperation to find something that would work, people were willing to try just about anything. So I think that's how this happened. It was out of desperation, um, and we're never going to have access to that. We're going to see the end results. We're going to see the amulets that look similar but with different different divine names or different sacred texts on them, but we're not going to know how that happened other than these sorts of imaginative scenarios
1: and in a lot of ways that makes a ton of sense right it's very as you said human to understand kind of look i'm gonna try whatever works did religious elites at the time also sort of think on that human level or did they try and crack down
0: No, they did not think on that human level. So if you think about somebody such as John Chrysostom, um, who rails against the use of amulets in particular and also um, against anything that he thinks is Jewish, uh, he and people like him want there to be clear-cut lines. Uh, If you do this, you are not a Christian. If you do this, you are a Christian. So, for example, we have authors who say, nobody who is a Christian would ever use an amulet. And, I mean, (laughs) that's a prescriptive statement. That's this author saying, this elite author um, saying, well if i see you using an amulet then you are by definition not a christian or not my kind of christian but in reality our our evidence from amulets clearly shows us that there are amulets that that are, are apparently christian so um, my favorite example from the book in response to people like Chrysostom, who say no amulet is ever permitted for a Christian, um, are these rings that have just the simple phrase, um, Christ or Lord, help so and so. And the name of the person who wore the ring is put right there. If that phrase had been said aloud as a prayer, Chrysostom would have had absolutely no problem with it. But somehow, the inscribing it uh, the inscription of it on an amulet on a ring and then wearing it changes it for Chrysostom in a way that I don't think changed it for whoever wore the ring. I think whoever wore the ring saw this this prayer on the ring as a natural extension of the prayer that they probably said over and over again, "Lord, help me." And uh, so this, for the person wearing it, was a thoroughly Christian item, yet for Chrysostom, it's not. Um, so we have a real dichotomy here between what the elites do and or what the elites say and what everybody else does. And I think part of it is that... Um, The elites know that nobody's listening to them, at least on this, Um, and so their rhetoric gets stepped up in reflection of the fact that they aren't making any headway on getting people to do what they want them to do.
1: Right. If people were agreeing with them, they wouldn't have to say it, right? So the fact that they are shouting about it tells us just how little they're being listened to. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to move away from amulets, despite how fascinating they are, and ask you about some other aspects of cures you discuss in the book, um, particularly healing rituals in particular places like sacred springs. Given what we've already talked about in that some communities kind of we can see distinctive practices within certain communities, but we also see a whole bunch of overlapping between them how can we understand healing rituals and sacred springs? Is this more kind of each community did it its own way or sort of everyone did roughly the same thing? What do we see when we look here?
0: That's, that's a great question. So now we're moving sort of past the amulet part and into the rest of the book. So as I was looking at sites associated with healing, um, I so my background was coming at this from the, the cult of Asclepius, and it turns out that this preeminent Greek healing god is quite present in Palestine, but that his sites in Palestine tend to be associated with water. So we seem to we see him show up at places like Hamakader, which is a hot spring, a thermal mineral spring, uh, in the southern Golan. The other thing um, that I noticed about the sites that we see uh, in Palestine, even beyond the connection to Asclepius, is that there are two basic modes that I identified for how the same site could be used by different groups of people. You have a coexistence mode where I think that people of diverse religious and cultural traditions were using a site at the same time. And then you have other sites where you don't have that coexistence, but you seem to have continuity of cult. So uh, as the political and uh, religious hegemony over a site changes, um, the healing association with the site remains, uh, but we have different cultural and religious groups taking over and applying their forms of healing to these sites. So Hamakadir is, I think, the best example of a coexistence of cult uh, site. So I think Jews, Christians and, uh, and what we call, what modern people tend to call pagans, although scholars don't like this room, this word, uh, what the followers of traditional gods uh, visited Hamakadere alongside Jews and Christians. So traditionally, in the cult of Asclepius, uh, people who were sick would go into the sanctuary and they would sleep in the sanctuary. And they would await for a, uh, await a vision or a dream of Asclepius, who would heal them in their dream. And then they would wake up, and they would be healed in real life, too. And at Hamak Adair and I think Hamat Tiberius, and a number of other thermal mineral springs that dotted the area of ancient Palestine, I think that this incubation, this awaiting a dream or vision, takes place... Um, in the water. And we have a great description of this, a 6th century description of this at Hamakadere, And I don't think that that 6th century description is new at that point. I think there had been this, um, this tradition of incubation there for a long time. So the obvious question when I talk about coexistence of cults at the same spot. How are Jews, Christians, and the followers of of Asclepius all using this site at the same time? And I have two answers for that. One, um, I think that all of the preparation for the incubation took place outside of the baths. Um, So, the the prayers, the purifications, the sacrifices uh, for Christians perhaps receiving the Eucharist, all of this would have happened outside of the bath complex. And then when people went into the bath to await their vision, it was a private moment. It was a personal experience between themselves and whichever divine healer they expected to see. So I make the argument in the book um, that Jews likely expected to see uh, the prophet Elijah in their dreams. Uh, Christians could have expected uh, Elijah. They could have expected a saint. They could have expected Jesus. Uh, And I think others would have expected Asclepius to appear to them. But that that epiphany, that individual moment with, with uh, the god wasn't, wasn't communal. Um, it was personal, it was private, it was individual. And I think that's true at hamakadere just as it is at, say, Epidaurus in Greece, the, the, the big site of the big cult of Asclepius in, in Greece. So that's one thing. The other thing is a a hot spring such as Hamakadere has lots of different areas to it. And that sixth century description of Hamakadere that we have um, talks about people going into one particular part of the bath and shutting the doors and uh, waiting there in that one particular part. And it talks about doing that at night. So I think you have going on there perhaps a segregation from other people who are not there who are just there to hang out at the hot spring but you also could have a segregation so that people who are um christians awaiting a christian vision might be in a different part of the bath complex than those who are awaiting a vision of asclepius i think there could be physical um segregation even within the same bath complex that would have facilitated this coexistence
1: that makes sense given kind of what we've talked about before in terms of overlap but also religious authorities having different views in this case i was fascinated to read in the book that christian authorities it wasn't like all sacred springs were great or they were all bad it seemed to be that some were acceptable but not so much others why
0: yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't think um, it has. So it has to do with that coexistence versus continuity. I think that those Christian authorities were really uncomfortable with the situation, such as what I envision happening at HaMakadir, where there is coexistence at places where earlier jewish or uh forms of worship or cult to asclepius took place that have been christianized there they're okay with it so the perfect example here is the pool of bethesda in jerusalem which was one of these sites that really um really helped me localize the book in Roman and late antique Palestine. So it's the site of a giant mikvah, a, a giant Jewish ritual bath, um, preparing pilgrims to Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the temple to ascend uh, the Temple Mount in a state of ritual purity. John 5 the in the New Testament would have us believe that there's a site of, of a Jewish healing cult here, um, That should be taken with a grain of salt since our only evidence for that is John 5. We do have uh, archeological evidence of a cult of Asclepius or of Serapis Asclepius there probably uh, after the establishment uh, of Aelia Capitolina. So this new Roman city on the site of Jerusalem. But ultimately the pool of Bethesda makes it into the liturgical life of the city of Jerusalem, and that in that way, it has the full, um, the full support of the local elites, and that's because two reasons. First, it had been thoroughly taken over um, by Christians. There was no longer Jewish cult or cult to Asclepius taking place there. It was just a Christian site, and second, it was associated with the life of Jesus. So we have this miracle story in John five taking place there. And because of that healing miracle in John five, other people, other pilgrims and residents of the city would come to the pool of Bethesda, almost in recreation of what happens in John five. So they hope to experience the same sort of healing that took place in John 5 by being physically present, and this Christian authorities had no issue with. This was um, this had nothing to do with the earlier Jewish uh, and uh, Jewish use of the site or the earlier cult of Serapis Asclepius. This was a thoroughly Christianized site, uh, and and Christian authorities were just fine with that.
1: Yeah. Okay. That would make sense, <laughs> given the connotations of that site. Um, Looking more at kind of what people believed was happening and sort of the mechanisms through which this was working, to what extent did the beliefs in the ritual healing abilities, how much did it focus on like the ceremony itself versus who was performing the ceremony how did those things sort of go together in people's minds and to what extent was that different with different groups?
0: Right. Great question. So I see the book as being divided into three different categories, person, place, and object. Uh, And those those three categories are, are descriptions of what was seen to facilitate the cure. So with the amulets, with those objects, it was actually the thing um, that facilitated the cure. With the hot springs and the pool of Bethesda, it was place. It was the, the place was what facilitated the cure. It was because there was something special about the place that enabled people to be cured. But then there are there's this whole other group of cures that are associated with people. People are the ones performing the cures. So with amulets uh, and with local healing sites, there's no real person who is performing the cure. It's the site or the object that is facilitating it. But With people, it is either the person themselves uh, as being a a holy man, a a charismatic healer who is seen as performing the cure, or the person is using prescribed words and rituals. And in that case, it is the prescribed words and rituals that perform the cure. So I distinguish here between between charismatic healers where it's the person and Jesus here is the, is the quintessential example in the new Testament stories of Jesus's miracles. um, Jesus is portrayed as having an innate power that he can transfer uh, and, and heal somebody by touch uh, or by speaking a word, but there are no, Uh, there are no ceremonial words that are necessarily associated with him in the New Testament texts. And that seem to be understood um, by later Christians as being ascribed to Jesus. Now there's a lot of debate here um, about whether this is a Christianized view of Jesus um, and that in reality, he was a, uh, uh, a wandering wonder worker who actually did perform uh, perform uh, what I call performative acts, who did work miracles through performative acts, where it is not actually his innate power, um, but the use of the correct words or the correct ceremonies to bring about a cure. So this is the distinction here. Um, this this is this brings us to the question of magicians, wandering exorcists, uh, and magicians who were often paid in antiquity to perform a cure. So there's debate over uh, whether Jesus actually fit into that model, but certainly among um, his among Christians, he was per- portrayed as doing something different, as being a charismatic wonder worker. Um, but those people who who did use prescribed words and actions uh these tend to get grouped into the category of magic but in fact what i try to point out in the book is that magic is such a highly loaded term so the elite authors are going to call somebody who is using prescribed words and actions to heal a magician if they come from outside of their tradition but if it's a member of the Christian clergy using prescribed words and actions, such as anointing with oil or laying hands on somebody, which we see uh, in the Book of James, it's the same thing. They are using prescribed words and actions, and it's the actions, not the person doing the anointing with oil, that is thought to be that is thought to bring about the cure. So. Uh, the whole point is that this last category, the people category, is really divided into, into two subcategories. People who heal because they are understood to have like a personal power or a con- personal connection to the divine. And we see this in Jesus. We see this uh, in Jewish wonder workers. And we even have a couple of examples among uh, traditional the followers of traditional Greek and Roman gods and those who heal by, uh, by performing ceremonies, uh, both liturgical ceremonies, as well as the freelance ceremonies that get labeled magic.
1: This is something I found absolutely fascinating, right? Which things get called magic and which don't, um, and kind of how those decisions are made, who makes those decisions. Is there anything further you'd like to tell us about that labeling and line drawing?
0: magic is what somebody else does uh it is Hmm. not um and in fact i try very hard throughout the book to avoid using the word magic there's debate among scholars as to whether it's a useful category can you talk about ancient magic for example and i avoid i avoid that because um it also creates this uh, division between, I mean, in scholars, between magic and religion, and magic is seen as subversive or as primitive, and religion is seen as organized and um, more, uh, more, I don't know, <laughs> theologically driven, more... uh, uh intel- Ideological? Ideal, It is. It's absolutely ideological. Um, But anyhow, so I try to avoid magic and religion and all of the baggage that goes with that. And that's why in the title of my book, I use the word ritual, uh, which avoids this dichotomy between magic and religion. And therefore, the only time that I really engage with this category of magic is when I'm looking at what the elite authors did in antiquity. I really want to limit magic to this discussion of how rabbinic authorities, early Christian authorities used the word to label the rituals that people outside their group were performing. And they did it for an ideological reason, to try to control Um, they're co-religionists. And as I say throughout the book, I think it didn't work. The fact that they were doing all of these things anyhow shows that it didn't work.
1: Yep, we've definitely mentioned that already. Um, And kind of the idea of their preferences not really winning out, I guess we've almost skipped to the answer. I wonder if I can ask you sort of directly, why did they care so much about regulating these healing practices?
0: Oh, I think part of it is that they were trying to establish themselves as the, as the real interpreters of their own tradition. So if we look at rabbinic authorities, for example, there's a lot of debate um, about the degree to which the ancient rabbis actually reflected common Jewish practice. And there seems to have been an effort among the rabbis to... Extend their influence beyond their narrow intellectual circle, and I think that's part of what's going on here. So it's not just um, it's not just about defining Jews versus Christians, but it's also about prioritizing different versions, uh, different groups within Judaism and Christianity. So a lot of this on the Christian side has to do with the various um, theological disputes, Christological disputes that arise um, with the councils uh, and especially uh, over the council of Chalcedon. And you have all of, you have these different rival groups and different forms of healing. So a charismatic healer, for example, can be seen as a way to confirm that your version uh, of Christianity, either pro-Chalcedon or anti-Chalcedon is is the true version of Christianity. So it's used as a way to entrench and solidify people's people's social, political, um, communal positions in relation to others that had competing positions.
1: And yet for all their protestations, the idea of my son is sick and I need to try something, um, yes. unsurprisingly, at least to me, wins out before I let you go, would you mind, you mentioned earlier in our conversation a little bit of what you might be working on next. Um, Do you want to tell us a bit about what you're going to do now that this book is done?
0: Yeah, so I'm still back on this question of um, reception of biblical texts and how we see that showing up in amulets. So I was really um, sad that I couldn't include the rich Egyptian material. And so I'm trying to build a database uh, that that tracks uh, the use of biblical quotations across different languages, different um, amulet media. So whether it's jewelry or papyrus or uh, a lamella, I'm trying to track all of that down I, I found that I like making lists and then comparing what all of these lists tell me. So at the moment, I'm in the g- data gathering stage, hopefully to be able to make an argument that moves beyond Palestine, and in particular, really gets at the use of the Christian use of biblical material on their amulets. So that's what I'm working on right now.
1: Well, that sounds intriguing. So best of luck with that project. Thank you. While you're off working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Contested Cures Identity and Ritual Healing in Roman and Late Antique Palestine, published by Edinburgh University Press. Megan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.